Shalom, Mishpocha. Shalom, family. Mishpocha is a Hebrew word. It means family. <laughs> We're the Mishpocha, the family with the Jewish heart, made up of Jewish and non-Jewish people where the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile finally come down to form one new man. Getting ready, Mishpocha, to blow the grandest shofar, all the grandest trumpet in Zion. We want everyone everywhere to hear the good news. We want everyone everywhere to really know the real Jesus. You see, my guest from Israel says that Christianity has been hijacked. Uh, We'll get into that in a moment. His name is Ron Cantor, executive pastor of Teferet Yeshua, uh, which in English means the glory of Yeshua, the glory of Jesus, Messianic Jewish congregation in Tel Aviv, Israel. Uh, Now, Ronnie, of course, uh, you're an American Jew. Uh, You have a real famous cousin, uh, the uh, House Minority Leader, uh, Congressman Eric Cantor. Uh, But I'm going to take you back a number of years ago. Uh, and uh, you, you, one of your best friends becomes a believer in Jesus, and he says, Ron, you must be born again. What went on inside of you? Uh, I was shocked. I didn't, how could this be? I was Jewish, and there was one thing that we were taught growing up being Jewish is that we do not believe in Jesus. So when he told me that I had to believe in Jesus and be born again, I was really uh, confused and stunned, and, and yet at the same time, for some strange reason, I knew he was telling me the truth, and I yelled at him. I said, Brian, that's not true. There's nothing written in the New Testament about being born again, which is quite funny because I had never read the New Testament. And he, of course, opened his Bible up to John 3.3, 3, where Yeshua tells the Jewish uh, rabbi Nicodemus uh, that he must be born again, and again, like, just a light went on. Like, somebody literally opened my eyes, and, and I was terrified. Uh, for the next eight months, I really struggled with this, but at the same time said, I really wanted to know, how do I find God? I realized I had lived 18 years of my life with, without ever really considering what happens to me after I die. If there's a God, I thought maybe there's a God, but I, I wasn't passionate about it. And so for the next eight months, I really wanted to know if Jesus was the Messiah. Now, you actually went to a a Jewish Yom Kippur service, and you actually fasted. And what was your prayer? Well, this was about seven months into it, and uh, I figured I can't even consider Jesus until I first search out Judaism. So Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the holiest day on the Jewish calendar comes, we fast. We, we believe we'll be forgiven if we fast. So I decided I would do something crazy for an 18-year-old. Uh, I would not eat for 24 hours. And many Jews do that all their lives, but for me it was, it was the first time. And uh, at the end of those 24 hours, I was hoping to have some sense of connection with God or, or feeling of forgiveness. Uh, but other than being extremely hungry, I did not feel any closer to God than I did the day before. Uh, well, and now I'm going to fast forward uh, with a college friend, uh, and he starts talking to you about the Messiah, uh, but something supernatural happened. Explain. Right. We were uh, w- coming home from Richmond, driving back to North Carolina to our school, 
And uh, somehow it came up that he had been a believer in high school. And he, I, I had all these questions for him. I wanted My big question said, what was your life like when you were a believer? Because I just believed that anyone who was religious at any level was just a boring, not interesting human, human being. And my question was, what happens to me if I actually choose to become a believer? Am I going to have a miserably boring religious life? You know what you're doing? You're counting the cost. That's what you were doing. But go ahead. <laughs> so I, I asked him what his life was like when he was serving God, and he was suddenly very excited. And, and as he's talking to me, a, a peace, a presence that I had never felt in my life entered the car and he said, Ron, in two days there's a movie in my home city of Durham, and I want to take you to it, and it's about Jesus. Uh, so we went to the movie. At the end of the movie, we're both crying. It was very powerful. But I also said, this is Hollywood. You know, I, I, I'm, I didn't become an alien after I watched E.T., even though I cried during E.T., and I wasn't going to give my life to Jesus because I was crying at a movie. But we got in the car, and we're driving back to our college about an hour away, and about halfway back, I just prayed. I said, God, I have to know the truth. Is Jesus the Jewish Messiah, or, or is there some other way to serve you? Show me how I can serve you. So as I begin to pray this, and this is the first time I've ever prayed in my life, as I pray this prayer, Dean loses control of the car. It begins to spin around. Uh, swerved and then spin around and then it flipped over upside down into a ditch. So we are now in the middle of farm country, North Carolina, upside down, alone. Our car was completely totaled. It was never driven again. And yet we got out of that car completely uh, unscathed. So we walk, we're looking for a house. There happens to be one house in front of us. Uh, other than that house, I don't think there was another house within miles. Uh, because it was farm country. We knock on the door, and these two wonderful born-again believers in Yeshua and Jesus answer the door, and next thing I know, I'm sitting in their living room, and they're explaining the gospel message to me. Uh, I had a lot of questions, and I said, if Jesus was the Son of God, why didn't he get off the cross and prove it? Interestingly enough, that's what one of the, one of the Roman guards said, you know, you know, show us here, the Messiah, get off the cross. And she explained to me, that he didn't come to get off the cross, but to die on the cross. She actually explained to me for the first time uh, God's plan of salvation and why he had to die. But said, I was not a very bright guy at that time. I barely got out of high school, and I really had no idea what she was saying. And as she's talking to me, this presence comes all over my body. And I'm not kidding. If I took my wet hand and touched a live electric socket, it would not have been stronger than what I felt that night. And the more I resisted this power, it just got stronger and stronger. So I finally stopped and I said, what is going on? What am I feeling? And that night, said, I, I believe. That night I was born again. I walked out of that house, a new creation. Everything was different. We got back to the, to the college and Everyone heard about our car accident. They wanted to know what was going on. I just had to tell people about Yeshua, about Jesus. The next night, I actually went to the bar where all of our friends hang out, and I don't recommend this to most believers, but I went to the bar because I wanted to go tell everybody what happened to me and how God had changed my life. Now, you were doing uh, drugs at the time, alcohol. You had a foul mouth. <laughs> what happened to all the above? 
Uh, well, I, about a week later, for a week I was good, but about a week later, uh, because I was literally alone in college, I fell back into my old patterns, drugs, alcohol, sex, everything. Uh, but about four months later, I'd come back to Richmond, Virginia, and I'd gone to a concert. At the end of this concert, uh, the, the, the singer asked who wanted to rededicate their lives to Jesus. I stood up. I did that. I said, God, I'm going to make a deal with you. I'm going to give you half of my life, but I want to keep half because I really enjoy, you know, what I do. And God is so merciful, Said He could have struck me down right then, and I would have deserved it. Uh, the next night, I went out um, to this bar. We had purchased a, a couple grams of cocaine. Uh, my friend did the cocaine. I did the cocaine. He had a great time. I was miserable. Uh, the, the drug did not affect me, and it was $100. And I was about 1 a.m., I was so angry and upset. I said, I'm just getting out of here. I'm going home. I got in my car, and uh, I began to drive home, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And he said, Ron, if you had had a good time tonight, you would have never returned to me. And I just broke down, said, I, I surrendered in that car. I cried. I cried out to God. I said, that's it. I'm done. I'm free. I'm giving you everything 100%. And now it's like 2 a.m. And I had to go. I had to tell somebody. You remember the old Don Francisco song? And I, I, had, I went to my friend Brian's house. He actually was out of town. Went to my friend Jimmy, Jimmy's house. Couldn't find him. Then I went to my uh, other friend's house who were all drug addicts. And I found somebody on the front porch and just began to preach the gospel to them. And I've kind of been doing that ever since. And But what happened to uh, your language and, and the drugs and the alcohol? Uh, one day turned into two. Two days turned into a week. Next thing you know, it's a month. Then it's six months. I, and it, and it, I was free. It was, it was never a struggle. I never had to think about it. Okay, Ron. Uh, you, you you were part of a congregation that uh, that a number of us started a long time ago, a Messianic Jewish congregation. And the next thing I know, you're married to a nice Messianic Jewish Israeli. Uh, and the next thing I know, you're on your way to Israel. Uh, we'll, we'll find out a little bit about that uh, tomorrow, because I want to know what an American bumped into that made Aliyah in Israel. But Tell me about your, your brand new book, Identity Theft. Well, so I started writing Identity Theft as a, just a Jewish roots book to explain to Christians the Jewish roots of the faith. Uh, I figured I would, you know, sell it when I was out speaking engagements. I, I thought it was a pretty good book. We wrote it. We finished it. It was a teaching book. And uh, as I finished it and was about to send it into the publisher— I just had this thought, and the thought was, Ron, you have written this book the wrong way. I want you to rewrite it as a novel. And I said, that's crazy. I am not Tom Clancy or, or John Grisham. I don't know the first thing about writing fiction. You know, I think I'm a pretty good teacher and preacher of the word, but to, to write a novel, I, there's no way. And this weighed on me for two days. And then I got an email from a woman who had been helping me with the editing process. And she said, Ron, I don't know what it is, but I had this vision about a, ca uh, a caterpillar that had gone into the cocoon. And then when it came out as a butterfly, it never reached its full potential because it came out too early. And she said, I hate to say this, but it's your book. It's not ready. 
So I was going, oh, this is crazy. How can I rewrite the, the, the novel? I ended up doing it. I took three weeks and did nothing else but write. And Sid, it was the most amazing experience. The, the moment I began to rewrite this book about the Jewish roots of the New Covenant as a novel, it flowed out of me. It was, it was a supernatural experience. Oh, I, I have to tell you, you are able, because it's such a captivating, actually humorous at times, story, and very poignant at times, you get truth out there that few would even read. I, I want to make you a promise. If you get this book, you will find out that, as Ron says, Jesus never st- intended to start a new religion. It's going to mess with your paradigms. And then the two CD series titled The Israel Connection, Release the Favor of God. Because when you understand the Jew and Israel and God's plan for the last days in every area of your life, favor will explode. The two CDs and the book Identity Theft, available for a gift of $35. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697, 1-800-447-2697. If God spoke to you and you're a nice, comfortable American, happy where you're at, and tells you to go to Israel, what would you do? Well, Ron Cantor, how in the world did God get you to go to Israel. Well, it, it's funny that you asked that. You probably don't remember this, Sid, but, uh, you know, we were part of the same congregation for many years, Beth Messiah, and we lived in the same area for many years. I remember one day when I was engaged to my wife, Ilana. Ilana was born in Jerusalem. She's a, a sovereign, native-born Israeli. And when you heard that we were getting married, you came up to me and you said, Ron, now you have to move to Israel. You're marrying an Israeli. And I responded to you, no, I don't, I don't think so. I'm not moving to Israel. Maybe I'll visit, but I had no intentions of moving to Israel. And a nice, it's a nice place to visit, but I don't want to live there. <laughs> right. And what happened to me, uh, I was actually reading a secular book a few years later uh, by Thomas Friedman called From Beirut to Jerusalem. And as I read about his six years living in Jerusalem— I I fell in love with this people. Even though I'm Jewish, I'm not Israeli by birth, I just fell in love with the character of this nation. It's so unique and special. All the stories he told, I just said, I have to to be with these people. It's probably why I fell in love with my wife. I love Israelis. And uh, so over the next several years, we we began to make plans to move here. It took us uh, 12 years. Uh, from that time, in 2003, when we finally did make Aliyah, for my wife, it wasn't making Aliyah because she was born here. And what is Aliyah? Aliyah is it's from a Hebrew word that means to go up. And so when a Jewish person makes Aliyah, it means they return from one country to the land of Israel. Oh, okay. I also remember bumping into you in Israel and remembering, uh, because my sister and brother-in-law live there, and you're, you, you and Alana are close with them, and I remember you were wrestling with uh, something that maybe you did and maybe you didn't think about before you left, and that's the language of Hebrew. Uh, tell me about your studies in Hebrew. 
Learning Hebrew has been the greatest challenge of my life. I moved here at age 38. I'm now 48. Um, my kids picked up Hebrew within a year. Uh, people under the age of 20 typically do pick it up very quickly, but the older you get, it is very hard to learn uh, Hebrew. I thought I would take two years for ministry from 2003 to 2005, and, and by 2006 I'll be preaching in Hebrew with no problems. Uh, but no, it took me about seven years before I gave my first message in Hebrew, and and, and I was terrified. Said I have I've preached in front of a hundred thousand people in English in in Nigeria, and I didn't even think to be nervous. But when I gave my first message in Hebrew in front of fifty people who were Hebrew speakers, I was terrified. I almost chickened out at the last minute and, and, and was going to grab an interpreter. But since then, I've been preaching in Hebrew for the past three years, and, uh, and, but I love Hebrew. I love learning it. It's a great language, and, uh, but it hasn't been easy. I, I am sure. Uh, but uh, tell me, uh, between you and me, uh, you go from the United States, uh, a, a very comfortable land, to Israel that in some senses is like the United States, but in other senses it's almost third world. Uh, how was that transition? Uh, it, it wasn't hard at all because, like I said, I, God had put such a love in my heart for this country. I love the third worldness, if you will, of this nation. See, on the one hand, Israel is a very much a first world nation. I mean, we have everything, every modern convenience that you have in America, we have here. We pay at the pump. We have Internet. We have everything. Uh, much of the technology that is in your iPhone or other or computer comes out of Israel. And yet we're in the Middle East. So even though we, we live on a first world level, we have the mentality of a third world nation. And so when you combine those two, it can, it can be explosive. And um, I, I have had many interesting encounters in Israel. It's just going to the grocery store in Israel can be, I joke with people when they say, what's different about America in Israel? I say, well, when I go to buy groceries in America, I come home with groceries. When I go to buy groceries in Israel, I come home with groceries and about 10 stories of what happened in the grocery store. I, I know because I went to Israel with my wife for a month and we went to the grocery store and uh, I felt as as nervous as you when you preached your first sermon, just trying to find the basics to live. <laughs> right, right. And so we've gone through that. And then if you get in the, 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 the fast line where you can only have 10 items and you have more than 10 items, you will be you will be called to account. And I've, I've had some of my most enjoyable moments watching Israelis argue with each other in the checkout line uh, in supermarkets. But it's part of what I love about this nation. People are very honest in the sense that they, they say what they're thinking. They don't hold back. Uh, it's a very aggressive, fast-paced culture, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, I have to tell you, you're provoking me to jealousy. And you're Jewish. The Gentile's supposed to provoke the Jew to jealousy, not the Jew. But, but Ron, you made a statement that Jesus never intended to start a new religion. What do you mean by that? Well, when he came, did, do we have any record of him saying, hey, I'm Jewish, but I'm getting rid of this whole Jewish thing. We're going to start a new club called Christianity. We don't see that in the New Testament. In fact, the word New Testament came before the New Testament, all the way back 
in Jeremiah, when God said through Jeremiah to the house of Israel and Jacob, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And so when Yeshua came, he came to Israel to tell them about this new covenant, not a new religion, uh, very much connected to the Torah and to the prophets. Uh, and so when the Jewish people began to hear this message all throughout Israel and became believers, we don't see them converting to another religion. When we read the book of Acts, we don't ever see uh, Paul or Peter speak of, to, to Jewish people about leaving Judaism. They say, this is what has been promised. This is what we have been waiting for for thousands of years. On the day of Pentecost, we call it Shavuot here, in Israel, we see Peter preaching before uh, several thousand Jewish people, but never once does he invite them to join a new religion. He invites them to have their sins forgiven through the blood of the Jewish Messiah. So what would you call Christianity if you had a chance to give it its name? <laughs> I call, well, I call myself a believer. In, in the New Covenant, they called it the way. Haderech, uh, we say in Hebrew, um, but it wasn't a new religion. The revelation said in the New Covenant, and this was this was was hidden for centuries, was that Gentiles did not have to become Jewish in order to enjoy all the promises, forgiveness of sins that the Jewish people were enjoying through Yeshua. As you know, that was the main controversy in in the Book of Acts. Do Gentiles have to become Jewish in order to believe in Yeshua? The Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 was to answer that question. But, but contrast that to, to you and me, when I, you came to faith, when I came to faith, one of the first things I said to myself was, I'm no longer Jewish. After 2,000 years of, of, of Christian anti-Semitism, of Jews being forced to be baptized, uh, we understood that as a Jew, we can't be part of this. But once I began to believe, I thought I had lost my Jewishness. And that was until I met a woman named Ziva, and I, she was the only other Jewish believer I knew of. I met her for the first time, and I said, Ziva, guess what? I also used to be Jewish. And she put her bony little finger in my face, and she said, don't you ever say you used to be Jewish. You're still Jewish. Then I began to read the New Covenant, and I saw these were all Jewish people. If you had told me growing up, Sid, that John the Baptist was Jewish, I would have thought that's crazy. How can a Baptist be a Jew? I didn't know who these people were. Or that Peter and Paul were Jews? Paul was a Jewish rabbi? I had no idea. Well, as a matter of fact, the Bible says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And what you have done, I'm not even going to give you the credit for it, Ron, because I believe it came straight from God. You have written a novel, the last thing in the world you would have done. And this is a novel about a Jewish man that comes to faith and is wrestling with how could this thing become so Jewish? How could this thing be so Jewish and no one sees it? Uh, tell me about what you really want to accomplish. Well, what we did is we, we took the, this whole idea of the Jewish roots of the faith. I wanted people to understand that, that the Jews did not reject Yeshua completely. There was a revival in Israel, in Jerusalem, in the greater Tel Aviv area, which was called Yafo, at the time. In the Galilee, tens of thousands of Jews did believe. 
Now, the majority of Jews did reject him, but the majority of the world has rejected him. And uh, there was a great move of God here, and these people did not leave Judaism. It says in Acts chapter 20, uh, 21, when Paul comes to meet James and the other apostles, James says, look how many tens of thousands of Jews have believed, and they're zealous for the Torah. So we wanted to get that across to people, and we did it by creating a story about a man named David who meets an angel. And then he has like a, a Scrooge-like experience. And he goes back into New Testament times as the angel teaches him the Jewish roots of the faith. Tell me about the novel and tell me a couple of experiences uh, that the character had in the, in the novel. Well, uh, you know, when we, when we did rewrite it as a novel, it was to do that very thing, that to take all these facts, but put it in a format that people would enjoy, that they wouldn't be able to put down. I've gotten so many emails said from pastors, from, from, uh, from it, all, a Jewish uh, guy emailed me over the summer. He said he couldn't put it down, and then two weeks later, he got born again. So uh, we wrote it for believers, but then I started hearing about Jewish unbelievers reading this book and for the first time seeing Jesus as the Jew that he was and is. So uh, what we did is this character, David, who is a reporter in Philadelphia, he's searching, he wants to know the truth, and, and he, he realizes as a young father and husband that he, he, he needs to know God. And he's interested in Yeshua, but he also knows that as a Jew, that's forbidden. And it's at that point that he has a visitation from an angel. And one of the things that the angel shows him is how Jewish people through the centuries have viewed him. For instance, he, has a, a, he gets to watch a, a movie. He goes back to ancient Jerusalem, watches a movie about uh, a woman who had encountered Yeshua, and her view of him was, he's, he's a Jew, he's the Jewish Messiah. There was no controversy. But then as time goes on, and you had the Crusades where tens of thousands of Jewish people were murdered uh, by the Catholic Crusaders as they marched across Europe into Israel, you begin to see the Jewish understanding change of, of Yeshua, because what happened is that Jewish people associated Jesus with Christianity, I should say institutionalized Christianity. We don't believe that these crusaders were genuine believers. They, they just had a cross on their shield. That was about it. They didn't have one in their hearts. And then he, has a, um, he gets to see what a young Jewish boy goes through in the Inquisitions, where his family is um, being forced to become Catholic converts. And uh, their father, uh, well, I don't want to tell the whole story, but he, what he goes through is agonizing his story. And then, of course, he actually ends up in the Holocaust, where he hears a firsthand report of what a young Jewish boy suffered in the Holocaust. And by that time, it might, my, when I wrote it, Sid, I was hoping by the time I got to that point, and that's really just in the first fifth of the book, that the reader would be hooked. And I read it first to my daughter, because she, I didn't mention this in the previous broadcast, but when I was debating whether or not to rewrite it, I, my old, youngest daughter, she's now in the Israeli Defense Forces, I, I said to her, I said, Danielle, I have this idea. I feel like God wants me to rewrite the book as a novel. What do you think? And I explained the vision. She said, Dad, you've got to do it. I said, okay, I'm going to work on it all day today, and then tomorrow I'm going to read you these, these first few chapters. 
I began to read the first uh, few chapters to her the next morning, and said when I got about four-fifths of the way through, she burst into tears. Now, this is my older teenage daughter, and, and, when I, and it's a story that she knew her dad made up, and yet she was so touched by it, she just broke into tears. And that is what I've gotten, emails and comments on Amazon.com and other places, Facebook. I had a woman the other day, and I, it's, I, I, it doesn't sound very humble saying this, but it really was a revelation from God, this book. She said, Ron, this is the best book I have ever read in my life. Now, Ron, uh, how, and to address this question, how did something that was obviously so Jewish, in fact, let's build that case right now. Why is the New Testament so Jewish? Well, just look at the words of Yeshua. He said, I came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He was not born in Rome. Uh, Mary was not a Catholic. She was a Jewish girl, an Israeli named Miriam. John was not a Baptist preacher. He was actually a Jewish prophet prophesying the coming of the Messiah. Uh, this was a Jewish story, and all of the original believers said were 100% Jewish. They, they were not preaching in Galatia or in Ephesus in, in uh, the years following the resurrection of Yeshua. They were preaching in Jerusalem, in Galilee, all over Israel, in Yafo. And Jewish people in mass were coming to faith, but there is no evidence that they ever, that it ever even entered their mind that this was something other than Judaism. Okay, so then that begs the question, Ron, if everything was so Jewish at the beginning, which it was, then how did it make such a change where a Jewish person like you or me didn't have a clue the New Testament was about Jews for Jews, written by Jews? That, that's a great question. And what happened is uh, it started really quite early. Once the Gentiles began to come into the kingdom, as you know, there was a controversy uh, whether or not they had to become Jewish and, and Acts 15 says that they didn't, and they, they, but then they quickly outnumbered the Jewish people. And then you have, uh, according to a Roman historian, in the year 49, Claudius, the Ro Roman emperor, he kicked out all the Jews from Rome. They had to leave. And Messianic Jews and non-Messianic Jews. And they were gone for about five or six years. And during that time, the Roman believers, which was probably a, a, a group of house congregations, uh, they developed a theology that God was done with Israel, God had finished with Israel, that they were now the new Israel. So in the year 55-56, Claudius dies, and the Jews are allowed back into Rome. So these Jewish uh, believers, they go back to their congregation, but now they're treated like second-class citizens. The Gentiles who've been leading it now for the past five or six years begin to treat them very poorly. Now, if you have that bit of information, then suddenly the book of Romans makes sense. Why is Paul so uh, insisting that the gospel is to the Jew first? And then in Romans 11, he makes such a strong case that God has not rejected Israel. And then at the middle of that chapter, he warns the Roman believers that if God could break them off, he can break you off too. Don't be arrogant, but be afraid in how you treat the Jewish people. Well, in, in light of that verse that you just read, uh, what would you say to someone that believes today 
God is finished with the Jew. Uh, he wants Jewish people to, to know him, but he's finished with the Jew as a distinct people. He is finished with the call of the Jew. And as a matter of fact, they're, they're kind of anti-Semitic because they say that the Jews killed Christ. Right. What I would say to that person is, is be careful, uh, really, with all the compassion and love uh, that I have, please be careful, because that's a dangerous place to be. Read Romans 11. It says very clearly that if the Gentile church turns against Israel, that God will have a big problem with those people. And that's what happened. Who did, who did Paul write Romans to? The Romans. And what did the Roman church became? It became a church that rejected the Jewish people. It, 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 it solidified the theology that the church has replaced Israel, and within a very short time, the Catholic Church was nothing but a, a museum of dead tradition and works righteousness. They judged Israel, and then they became the very thing that they judged. Now, I know that there are many godly Catholics that, that, that believe in Yeshua, that are born again, but as an institution, uh, they begin to create traditions in, that, that you can't find in the Bible. And... Uh, they began to persecute the Jewish people, and God said, don't be arrogant, but be afraid. If I can cut off the natural branches, I can cut you off as well. Well, as you point out, the dividing line between true believers and false believers in the last days will be, do you have the same position on the Jew in Israel as God has? And if you have that same position, you're going to move into the same works that Jesus has done and even greater. And if you don't have that position, you're going to move into heresy and further error. By the way, to the question of the Jews killed Christ, this is what Paul says in Acts 4.27. This is who killed Jesus, by the way. Acts 4.27. For truly against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, now here's who killed him, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined. So who killed Jesus? The Jews and the Gentiles. You get the Jews and the Gentiles together, you get the whole world. That's who killed Jesus. In fact, no one could kill him. He laid down his life for the whole world. So stop being Meshuggah. Stop being crazy. Come to your senses. You will love Ron's new book, Identity Theft. He'll give you information that it would take a lifetime to accumulate. And you will understand the new covenant better than you ever have in your life. And then the two CDs, I, I have to tell you, the subject of these two CDs, the Israel connection and how you can release the favor of God. But it's not just in soul winning. It's not just in healing. It's not just in prosperity. It's intimacy with the living God. The two CDs, the book Identity Theft, Available for a gift of $35. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697. 1-800-447-2697. I am told that things are going on in Israel as far as a Jewish evangelism, like have, have not been in centuries. Uh, what are you seeing going on? Well, we, we, in, the, in our congregation, we've been enjoying a wonderful season, uh, really since February of, la of this year, 
we've seen uh, many Israelis come to faith. We immersed 10 Israelis over the summer in the, in the Mediterranean Sea. Um, every service, uh, the presence of God is there. Uh, so we're, we're very optimistic. We're expecting more. And uh, I would invite all of your listeners around the world to agree with us in prayer because we need the prayers of the believers all around the world in order to be strong. Now, we're interviewing you on your brand new book, Identity Theft, uh, because the church's identity has been stolen. Uh, And uh, we're still trying to—now, the way you've written it, it, it's masterful. I mean, you could have written a book on facts, but instead the Holy Spirit directed you to write a novel about a Jewish reporter that that an angel apprehends and takes him back in time. Uh, it, it, it's a fabulous premise on the book, um, but you work in all the facts in the storyline. People will they won't want to put the book down. You have humor in the book, uh, but you also have some moments from history that are, are very sad. For instance, uh, let, let me take you back to an emperor, a Roman emperor by the name of Constantine. What effect did he have in this identity theft? Well, he was the first Roman emperor to embrace Christianity uh, in uh, 325 or 312. Um, and he, up until that, the other ten Roman emperors before him were very hostile to the faith. Hundreds of thousands of believers uh, were martyred in, in the Roman Empire, uh, primarily because they would not proclaim that Caesar was God. Back in the, uh, during those times, Caesar was considered a deity, and once these people began to believe in Yeshua— uh, they could no longer confess publicly that Caesar was God, and so they would be killed. But Constantine, he became a believer. The problem is, is that he felt that uh, a part of his mission, again, I say he became a believer. I don't know. Based on the fruit of his life after that, it's hard for me to believe he was genuinely born again. No, I, I doubt seriously that he was, because as I read history, he literally started merging paganism and Christianity, which was one of the worst things that ever happened to Christianity. Right. So in, in, tre- in 325, he instructed the bishops of Nicaea to get rid of Passover. Up until that point, when the church would celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, they would use the Jewish feast of Passover. It made perfect sense because it happened at the same time. But he was anti-Semitic, and he did not want to honor the Jewish people. Somehow he must have forgotten that Jesus was a Jew and all of the uh, apostles were Jewish. But he uh, wrote to the bishops of Nicaea, and they got rid of Passover, and they took the pagan feast of Eshtar, uh, which then became Easter, and that's what we celebrate today. And in addition to that, he created the, the idea of celebrating the birth of the Messiah in addition to his death, and he took these pagan traditions and he created Christmas and Easter. Okay, what effect did it have on a Jewish person that embraced Jesus, was part of the church, but wanted to still observe uh, the Sabbath, observed Passover, uh, uh, what would happen to them? That became illegal. (laughs) That became against the law. 
you were not allowed, Jew or Gentile, to embrace the Jewish feast, to embrace the Sabbath. In fact, in the year 364, the Council of Laodicea, they actually, they formally declared Sunday as the Lord's Day, and they said no longer should you rest on, on the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, you must rest on Sunday. Here's exactly what they wrote. Christians shall not Judaize and be idle on Saturday. They shall work on that day, but the Lord's Day, meaning Sunday, they shall especially honor, and being Christian shall, if possible, do no work on that day. If, however, they are found Judaizing, which means resting on the Jewish Sabbath, they will be cut off from Christ. So when the church uh, should have been concerned about things like adultery or in the modern era, pedophilia, uh, things like that, they're worried passing laws over which day somebody rests. It's absolutely crazy to the point that they said, if you celebrate the Jewish Sabbath, you will be excommunicated. You won't go to heaven. You cannot partake in the Messiah. Well, what about something like uh, baptism? How, how did that get so changed? Well, that's really interesting, because if you, if you take away 2,000 years of history, you'd understand that baptism uh, is Jewish. It came out of— Jew- and, and yet, I'm going to take you back, Ron, to a, a, a Jewish college student that doesn't believe in Jesus, and if someone says, you must be born again and baptized, what would have went through your mind? <laughs> I, I would have said there can be nothing more un-Jewish— than getting back. It's one thing to secretly believe in Jesus, but to get publicly baptized is, in essence, to say, I'm no longer a Jew. I'm cutting myself off from my people. That's how I felt. But as I began to study, I began to realize that immersion of water started with the Jewish people. It was a, we, we see John the Baptist, who sounds like a Christian figure. I often ask people when I'm speaking, uh, if I mention uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or Isaiah, do you think Christian or Jewish? And they all say Jewish. And I say, well, what about John the Baptist? And then they say, oh, Christian. But he wasn't a Christian. John the Baptist was a Jewish prophet, just like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. And what he did is he prophesied the coming of the Lord, and then he called people to repent, and he would immerse them in water to express that. But not only John, in Jerusalem. Do you ever wonder, Sid, how Peter and the other apostles immersed in water 3,000 Jewish men plus women and children on the day of Shavuot. There could have been as many. Listen, I've been out to the Jordan, uh, and I've had baptism services, and it's a lot of work. How did they do it, Ron? And there's no water in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, you're on top of a mountain. There's no river. There's there's, there's very little water. The the answer to the question is this. Archaeologists have found over 50 uh, immersion tanks surrounding the temple. Now, why were they there? Because whenever a Jewish person would come to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice, before they could go into the temple courts with their sacrifice, they would have to go in through one of these immersion tanks and get ritually clean. This was very... Uh, um, very familiar to Jewish people. So when Peter commanded that these 3,000 Jewish men be immersed in water, they didn't argue and say, well, what is water immersion? We've never heard of this. Is this a new religion? No, they were familiar with it. In fact, 
they had already probably been immersed that week because they had come up from the nations to celebrate the Feast of Shavuot, Pentecost, and probably made a sacrifice at the temple. They were completely familiar with the whole idea of baptism. But then what happened in the Middle Ages, particularly in Spain, is that when the Jews of Spain were told, my wife's family were run out of Spain 500 years ago, they were told either be baptized as a Christian or get out of our country. And so this left a horrible taste in the hearts and minds of Jewish people for centuries. So when we think of baptism, sadly, as Jewish people, we often think of something completely and totally not Jewish. Yeah, you know, Ron, I've studied the Jewish mikvah, which is where baptism really came from, uh, and I like some of the principles. Uh, For instance, it's a self-immersion because they don't want anyone but God to touch them. And so many many times uh, when I have a service in Israel, I make it a mikvah service because many have already been baptized in a traditional sense, and it's one of the highlights of our tour. Amen. <laughs> it absolutely is. And and it's completely Jewish. It started with the Jewish people and uh, continues today. Well, Ron, we want to make available your new book, Identity Theft. Uh, in a couple sentences, why did you call it Identity Theft? Because Jesus was robbed of his Jewish identity. I told myself when I got born again in 1983, I'm no longer a Jew. Well, anybody who had read and studied the New Testament would know that that's ridiculous. But Jesus was made over the century. His, his hair was, was colored blonde. His eyes suddenly became blue. He, many people might think he was Norwegian or Danish, but certainly uh, not a, an Israeli. And I'm not really talking, Sid, about his, the tone of his skin or the color of his eyes. I'm talking about the promised Jewish Messiah. Uh, but, but wait a second now. Okay, I see why that's important for a Jewish person. But why is it important for a Gentile Christian? It's important for a Gentile Christian because it's their roots. It's what they believe. Would you like to be married to somebody for 20, 30, 40 years and then find out that their background was completely and utterly something other than what you believe? That would be shocking. We try and introduce people to the real Yeshua, why he came. He came in response to the prophecies of the Jewish prophets. Uh, uh, Ron, we're, we're out of time. We're talking about your new book, Identity Theft. Uh, it's written as a novel, and it's, the premise is so amazing. A Jewish reporter does his investigation about who Jesus is, but does it in an amazing fashion. He has an encounter with an angel. Um, and, and then in a time machine, he goes back throughout history to see how something so Jewish had their identity stolen from them, from the church. And as a matter of fact, I understand that as people read your book, first of all, they can't put it down. Second of all, they get information that nowhere else on the planet are they going to get because very few pastors understand the Jewishness of the New Testament. Therefore, how could they teach it? Uh, And then you understand why so much confusion in the Jewish community about who Jesus is. A a lot of Christians say, I don't understand why Jewish people don't believe in Jesus. Uh, and, and and but people are saying their intimacy goes off the top when they read the book. Explain. 
Well, you know, the, the main character, David, as he uh, begins his search, he's learning all these new things. But as he gets deeper into the search, he, I don't want to give away the whole book, uh, but in chapter 24 and 25, uh, and people write me all the time, and they say, Ron, I got to chapter 24, and it just it wrecked me. It crushed me. I was crying. I was in tears. What they don't know is that when I wrote those chapters, I was weeping. Now, said I have never written a novel in my life, and it was the most amazing experience because I, it was like the characters were directing me, and and I didn't. I've heard from other writers that this is often how it happens, but it was such a unique experience for me. And when I got to this to chapter twenty four and twenty five, which I didn't know they were twenty four twenty five at the time, he meets the Messiah. He meets the Messiah in Jerusalem in the year thirty just before his crucifixion. That's all I'm going to say. All I can tell you is that he has an encounter with Yeshua that is, it broke me. I literally was, was writing these chapters and crying because I was, I was so identifying with the character. And I have people write me all the time and just talk about how they know, they now know Yeshua, Jesus, in a whole new way. Okay, explain to me why in the Old Testament uh, there, there's a sister of Moses, Miriam, uh, and her name is Miriam. And then in the New Testament, there's the mother of Jesus, and they call her not by her name, which is Miriam, but they call her Mary. And, and, and that's true for a lot of the Jewish people in the New Testament. Why was that hijacked? Well, uh it could have been innocent simply because if you take the, the name Miriam and translate it to English, it becomes Mary or Maria. Um, but it's interesting that in the Old Covenant, which is all, my, you know, the Old Covenant that I read in English, they didn't change the name of Miriam, the sister of Moses, to Mary when the Bible is probably because they went straight from Hebrew to English, whereas in the New Covenant, they went from Greek to, from Hebrew to Greek to English. And, uh, and it's the same thing with the, with the name Joshua. A lot of people don't know it, but uh, Yehoshua is the long form. That's Joshua in Hebrew, but it's the long form of Yeshua, a shortened verb. That Yeshua and Joshua is basically the same name. When I tell people here uh, about Yeshua the Messiah, they often think I'm talking about the Old Testament figure Joshua. And I have to explain to them, no, this is the Son of God, the Messiah. And we see that with Peter. I mean, if I told you a story of, a story about Peter, James, and Mary, or Peter, Paul, and Mary as the old band, you would say this is not a Jewish story. But if I told you a story about Shaul, which is what Paul's name was, by the way, he never changed his name. The Bible doesn't say he changed his name. Well, but wait a second. Many Christians uh, say uh, his name was Saul, but then his new name was Paul. What would you say? I would say that's ridiculous, because Paul at the time wasn't a Christian name. It was a typical Roman Latin name. There was nothing spiritual about it. The truth of the matter is, is that most Jewish people, you probably have two names, Sid, when, when you're Jewish. I do. It's, it's my, my, my whatever nation we're in, like my name is Sydney in the United States, but in Israel, it's Yisrael. Right. So your parents gave you two names, a Jewish name and then a, an American name. My parents named me Ron, but I also have a Jewish name, Chaim, 
Uh, it's very normal. So Paul, when he was in the Roman-speaking world, he was Paul. When he was in Israel amongst Jews, he was Shaul or Saul. He had uh, two names. The Bible doesn't say he had an epiphany and suddenly took on a Roman name to replace his Jewish name. That would be ridiculous. And then we have Peter. You know, the, the word Peter isn't actually a name. It, it's become a name, but it just means rock. It comes from the uh, Aramaic word kepha, which, which, which is what Yeshua called Peter when he said, your name is no longer, you know, uh, Peter, or rather no longer Simon. You're going to be called Kepha. You're going to be called Rock. It was a very cool name. Um, but again, when you refer to people as Peter, as Paul, as Mary, you don't think Jewish. You don't think a Jewish story. I want to tell uh, how about Yaakov? The brother of Jesus, his name was Jacob. Yet in every English Bible in the world, just about, it says that his name is James. Nobody ever, James is a great name if you're a butler, if you're a waiter. <laughs> but it's not a Hebrew name. The Hebrew name is Jacob. The book of James is actually the book of Jacob. How about something like communion and the Last Supper and the Passover Seder, you don't even get the connection that the Last Supper was a Passover Seder. Right. Well, David has that revelation in, in the book when he gets to view the Last Supper, and he realizes that it's a Passover Seder. That, that, and it's the, the, the imagery is amazing because Yeshua becomes the Passover lamb who spills his blood for us, the blood that in the Exodus would go on the doorpost of your house, it, it's now the blood of the perfect Lamb of God, Yeshua, and it goes on the doorpost of our heart. So when John, uh, his cousin, John the Baptist, saw him uh, a few years earlier, he had a revelation. I believe personally it was the first time that he understood Yeshua was the Messiah. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, who takes away the sin of the world. But when Yeshua took that cup and he took the bread, the matzah, and he said, This is my... This is my body, and this is my blood. This was in the middle of a Jewish Passover Seder. So if we denude all of the biblical feasts from Christianity, we miss a whole lot of the New Testament. Absolutely, and the second coming. The Bible says very clearly that when Yeshua returns, he's in Zechariah chapter 14, He's coming back to Jerusalem to fight for Israel. His feet will land on the Mount of Olives, and he will set up his messianic kingdom in the great city, and then the word of the Lord will go forth from Zion to the nations of the world. And he says any nation that will not come up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles is going to be in big trouble. What would you say to believers that have turned against the Jew in Israel? Uh, I would say be very careful, because the great hope of the body of believers is the return of the Messiah. That's what we long for. That's the longing of Paul as he writes the epistles. We're looking for his return. And when he does return, Sid, he cannot, will not return to an anti-Semitic bride. I cannot imagine that he, as a Jew, is going to return to a bride that hates him, that is against him, or to believe that his people have been rejected by God. As someone said to me recently, Jesus is not going to marry anyone that doesn't like his mother, and his mother, Miriam, is a Jew. 
Well, as far as I'm concerned, that's, that settles the argument. Uh, but, Ron, uh, you wrote the book with humor, and, and it's so poignant, uh, and it's, it, it, because it's a novel, but all the facts are historical facts. Peop, are people reporting to you they can't put it down? Uh, yes, in fact, if they, uh, Evan, uh, Evan Horton, the senior pastor at Brownsville Assembly of God, where there was the great revival in the 90s, uh, he wrote me and said, Ron, as soon as I started reading, I couldn't put it down. Don Cento uh, from Tennessee, a uh, very well-known uh, pastor and author, he said from the, from the introduction, he, he, was, he was glued, never put it down. And then I've gotten emails just from people around the world who said, Ron, oh, oh, it's, it, it's going to change your whole paradigm of understanding who Jesus is. It is going to literally increase your intimacy with the Lord like it, you've never had it before. Uh, identity theft and then the two CDs. The title of the two CDs are The Israel Connection, How to Release the Favor of God in Every Area of Your Life. We're making the two CDs and the book, Identity Theft, available for a gift of $35. Shabbat broadcast. Let me pray over you. The Lord is blessing you right now. The Lord is smiling upon you right now. The Lord is surrounding you with his favor right now. The Lord is giving you his shalom, his completeness in your spirit, in your soul, and in your body right now. Receive it in the name that is above every name, Yeshua HaMashiach Tzikenu, Jesus the Messiah, our righteousness. To hear this week's interview or watch archives of our television show, It's Supernatural, visit our website at www.sidroth.org. That's www.sidroth.org. To receive a complimentary copy of our bi-monthly teaching newsletter, materials catalog, or information about becoming Mishpucha or Chalitzim, write to me, Sid Roth, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278. To place a credit card order, call anytime, 1-800-447-2697. For all other calls, the number is 704-943-6500. That's 704-943-6500. For a CD of this week's broadcast, send a donation to Sid Roth. That's S-I-D-R-O-T-H, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278.